Welcome to another amazing episode of Kazi's Audio Experience. This is the podcast where we're not only going to sharpen our technical skills, but we're going to learn to become profitable as filmmakers. Hey guys, what's going on? Another week, another live, and this time we are going live with the colorist of Mad Max. I'm talking about Eric Whip. What a freaking legend. I mean, come on. When you think about like when you think about action movies now and for the until the end of time, we're going to think of Mad Max and think about what it takes to create something like this. Like it just baffles my mind. We have so many questions. You guys are freaking epic. I'm still writing questions. I mean, there was so much stuff that you guys just loaded me with. Thank you so so much. I'm so pumped about this. Mad Max is genuinely one of the reasons why literally I dove into color grading really, really hard. Back then I was still an editor, I was doing some cinematography, but Mad Max was one of those things that I'm like, I know for a fact, having a cinematography background, that this is just not done in camera. I don't, I don't care what somebody says. So we're talking to a legend today. Get super pumped. You can follow him on Eric Whip, um, at Eric Whip, I think at Eric underscore Whip. Definitely check him out. Definitely give him a follow. What's going on, Eric? Hello. How's it going, man? Thanks for joining us. Ah, not a problem. I've got nothing else to do. I'm sitting around in isolation. What else are we going to do these days? It's a perfect time for this. I'm so stoked. Thank you so much. Um, so I did an introduction and, and Alter Ego, is this your company? Yeah, I'm one of a couple of partners. Uh, yeah, but we have a company here in Toronto, in Canada, uh, post-production. So we have five color suites up here and uh, five flame VFX suites and a CG department and motion graphics department, a little wow. shooting department. So a little company going on here. That's amazing. That is so freaking incredible. So are you guys mostly handling is it is it equipped to handle everything or is it just commercials or features we are mostly commercials like that's 90 percent of our business but we take on the odd feature film here and there we take on some short films we take on music videos documentaries but you know we get pretty busy in commercials so it takes up the majority of our time okay that's uh, that's something that i'm very interested in because that's majority of my work too so we're going to be diving into that too um, Eric, you're also a photographer. I mean, you love to take pictures of the skies that you like to replace in. Yes. Sometimes, sometimes my photos get pretty boring. They're just boring skies, but they're very useful. They're so useful and I'm so inspired and I want to start doing that. So, um, let's start, let's just track back before we even jump into Mad Max and all the, you know, all that stuff. Like, let's just go back and talk about um, you know, the origin story a little bit, like, where do you come from? Like, was, were you a cinematographer turned into colorist? Like, what's the story? That's an interesting question. Uh, I started, uh, I went to film school, like a lot of people and, you know, had grand ideas of, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to be, to be honest. I thought, uh, I thought, you know, everybody goes into film school thinking they want to be a director and then you change your mind very quickly. Same. I got kind of fascinated with cinematography. I've been taking photos since, I could hold a camera. So I was always interested in photography. Then, you know, I thought to myself, oh, well, I guess I'll be in, I think I like the post side as well. I think I might just be an editor because that's all I kind of knew was editing or shooting or that, that was it. Right. And then I uh, 
stumbled across telecine, which, you know, for those of you who don't know what that is, that's a bit of more of an older term, but telecine was, was the machine basically that would transfer film to video. And in that process, you applied color and you did all the color work. And uh, I sort of quickly realized, I was like, hey, this is kind of post, this is kind of editing. And it's kind of cinematography. It's like everything, right. you know? So I sort of fell into it there and got into it that way. That is, that is so amazing. And similar, somewhat of a similar story. You went to school for film and then uh, majored in cinematography, minor in editing. And then while I'm shooting stuff, I'm realizing that something is missing. Like, what is that Hollywood sauce? Like, what is that thing that I'm missing? There's something there. And got me curious, started using Apple Color and uh, it just got me all stoked. And then, you know, the Resolve 8 or whatever, and that's how I started too. So um, it, it's just interesting where you start to where you end up in this field and you're 100% right, it's directing all the way. Like somebody had told me a long time ago um, that they were just like, hey, you know, cinematographer is a big deal. And I was just like laughing. I'm like, the guy with the camera, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, you wanna be a director if you talk about movies and then you look into it and what goes into it is crazy. Yeah. Um, so you're, are you um, using Baselight in your company? Like, just Yeah, we, uh, about 12 years ago, we opened up Alter Ego and we opened with two Baselight suites and we've since expanded to five of them, plus uh, a whole bunch of Baselight assist stations for all our assistants. But um, yeah, we, we sort of found that Baselight had everything we wanted. And especially, you also, a little backstory, when we opened Alter Ego, we were the first company in Toronto, if not a lot of North America, I'm not sure, but, ex but definitely in Toronto, the first company doing commercials in non-linear using like a, uh, these you know, computer-based systems. Everything back then was still put your film up on the telecine, roll it through in real time, right. fast forward the film, rewind the film, like nobody was doing non-linear. So to grade a commercial was frustrating. You had to put up roll one and grade the wide shot, take a still frame, rewind that roll of film, put up roll two, fast forward to the close up, grade the close oh up God. and then rewind, go back to roll one. And you know, it was very hard to see your edit come together, right? Uh, so when we opened Alter Ego, the technology was just at the cusp where it was good enough to do. I mean, this was 2007. And I think there was already, there was already nonlinear technology used in features and things, but the commercial turnaround is so short. How are you going to get your film scanned, get it all in there, get it all out again in 10 hours was a big issue. And it was just at the cusp where it was good enough. So we went in and opened up completely doing the nonlinear workflow. And at that time, there wasn't really a ton of choice. Like there was Resolve had just come out, um, you know, Baselight was out. Uh, there was a system called Dakota that was out. There was um, a, a Pandora system. I can't remember what it was called now. And, uh, and the Luster system was out and stuff like that. But honestly, for what we wanted to do in commercials and have time code working and have, you know, all the little bells and whistles and we had to do rough comps yeah. and do all these things. There really wasn't a choice and it was right. like, it has to, it has to be Baselight. And I'm so glad we went that way because the architecture of the way Baselights was written, I could tell even in those early days, the way it was written and the way it could handle like OFX plugins and things like that. I knew that this right. was going to be uh, a system that would be really good for us down the road. Now, I mean, correct me, you know, if I'm wrong, but Baselight keeps it pretty tight. Like, I mean, it's almost like the, the avid, like, yes, it's widely used, but, still when you think about the company like as a whole 
I mean, it's not, you know, Adobe, like in terms of just like the revenue and all that and how they attack it. And then black magic is kind of coming up too, you know, like how the strategies they're coming up with creative ways to like giving you a software for free if you buy their camera and then you get used to them and you want that ecosystem and everything. So with baseline, why are they so tight? Like, I don't understand why they want to just keep it. You know, I, that's a good question. I don't know. But I think they're really their market was very much in the high end commercial and feature workflow. And so what I think they've done and what they are doing, they are opening it up a little because what they're doing is they're supplying Baselight now for Avid and for Nuke and for Flame. And for so all of these things can start to work in conjunction. But it was really a tool made specifically for like, I guess, you know, it was really aimed at like the experience kind of big commercial colorist or whatever that was. This is why it was, you know, designed by colorists as well. So it was very much done like that. And then it was only really, honestly, how many years ago was it now? It's probably only like, you know, seven years ago or something that uh, uh, Resolve really became like such right. a open, cheap platform and everything. Every, that sort of started changing the, the playing field. And I think, you know, we're already seeing base like coming along that way by offering right. all these other options. Now, so, you know, I've seen you work, you know, like when you're creating keys and you're getting in there and I've never used Baselight, but what I've seen you do, it seems like it may or may not be possible in Resolve. Like, do you think that when it comes to like the compositing capabilities, like Baselight might have an edge or do you think? Uh, I think Baselight probably has an edge in the terms of the compositing. They're very good at, um, you know, at, at that sort of structure. They're, they're very much, it's funny, it started off very much as a colorist tool, but it's becoming more of a visual effects tool. It's really becoming a finishing station. Um, so there's definitely an element of that a bit, you know, a lot of the stuff that we do on Baselight, you can do on almost any program. It's just how you approach it and how you think about it. Now, a movie like Mad Max, can that be created in DaVinci Resolve or was Baselight, you know, gave you that like a little extra edge? You know, it's been a long time since I've jumped on Resolve, so I'd have to check. What, like, the only thing that r was really unique about uh, Fury Road was, you know, it's, it's, so here's a funny story. So I started on Fury Road with a couple of shots, just kind of playing around and trying to get some ideas of looks and things. And I had this, I had this one shot that was a shot of a bunch of cars coming towards camera. It was very dusty, you know, shot on the back of a you know, some other moving car. So there's just dust flying everywhere. And it, it's like, a, it was a crazy action shot. And the shot was just very gray. It's, you know, grayish beige dirt that wasn't very saturated. It was a little bit overcast. You got these cars coming towards us, there's dust in the frame. And I was like, okay, how can I make this look good? So I tried all these things and no matter what I did, it was just a frame full of beige. There was no other color in there. And it was just like, yeah. it was very, very hard. So I kept trying to develop looks and this was one, I only had like, you know, 15, 20 shots to play with at the beginning when I was first working on it. So I was just like trying to develop looks on these same shots over and over. And this one shot, I just couldn't, couldn't work it out. And then I thought, you know, we did this a lot in commercials, but I thought, you know, I might do a sky replacement and actually put a whole new sky in there. I tried for days to get this guy. It was, there was nothing to track. It was just a <laughs> dust cloud and it was impossible to track. And I was like, so I, I said to myself, make a mental note don't offer up sky replacements. It's going to be a nightmare yes. on this film, right? Oh don't offer God. that up because yeah. if George knows that we can do sky replacements, oh I've opened God. a can of worms. It's going to be a problem. Anyway, <laughs> we started the film 
I get to a completely different shot earlier on in the movie where I'm working on one of the scenes and I was like, oh God, you know, just this shot needs a sky replacement. It would be so good. And I was like, you know what? I'll just do it on this one. And of course I opened that can of worms and the whole thing opened up. Uh, and I remember, you know, it was like six months later, I finally got to the point of the film where that, that same shot that was, I was struggling with came up in the edit. And I oh, spent no. like an, I spent another day on it, and I managed to finally get it to track. So it worked out fine. But I guess the cutting a long story short, the uh, the sky replacements became a thing on that film because you know they shot sunny, cloudy, right. dusty, non-dusty. It's it's all over the place. Uh, so trying to match that film became a really difficult challenge. And one of the things that worked and helped was at least have a consistent sky. And, you know, I was able to kind of replace a lot of the skies to get that feeling of consistency. So I'm not 100% sure about Resolve, whether it can do the same level of compositing of sky replacements like that. But um, it, that became a godsend on that film to, oh, to do man. that. That is insane. And again, like I've, I've seen how effortlessly you will put in a sky and track it. And I feel like in Resolve, no, not in the color page. You can go into Fusion and try to do that. But then Fusion is like, Fusion is a different software that now is part of the DaVinci package. So it's almost like you can't just take your skills that you know, you've honed over time and resolve and just apply it directly to Fusion. It's almost like you kind of have to learn it. Um, right. But no, not as effortless, I would say. That is insane. And it is so freaking funny because every time I experience that, like you go above and beyond and then that becomes the norm. That's expected, right? Like the director is just gonna be like, hey, can we do a little more of that? Can we do a little more of that? But I mean, it was worth every single cent because literally just like me, there's so many people, people are literally writing saying, I wanted to be a colorist after I saw Mad Max. So that must make you feel really freaking proud to what you created. And it's something that's gonna go in the books. Of, I mean, it's like anytime I buy a new TV and I wanna see how good it's gonna look i judge it based on how mad max looks on it like i'm being serious <laughs> That's funny. you know how right. much what we what we can see so okay you know you have i i feel like you are a perfect blend of like technical and creative right like when you were working on a job but when you were starting out what was the driving force was it i want to play with these colors and see what i can do or was it like i like that this field is so technical that you know sort of like a specialty thing like it's going to be my thing like what's you know it's a it's a little bit of both it's always a bit of both like i love cinematography i love lighting i couldn't wait to get looks and try things and when i started of course going back to the telecine thing it was all on telecine and i literally had to walk around with the screwdriver in my back pocket and keep tweaking the you know parts of this stupid this machine was a terrible machine and it had noise problems and all and you had to keep tweaking and fix the shading and do all this stuff to get the right image but at the same time, you got to experiment on a, on a different level, like stuff that we don't do today, but on telecines, you would take pieces of glass and put them in the lens and move it around while you're transferring the film and stockings what? and things, you know. So you do all these other things, which was fun. So, you know, like everyone, when you first start off, you end up doing, you know, the more experimental things and short films and music videos. And so whenever I got a music video, I was like, ooh, I'm gonna get in there with a bit of glass and wave it around and play oh with it. God. And so, you know, there was definitely that, that period of, uh, you know, exploration that was so much fun to get into. And then you really start to develop looks. And then throughout that process, you develop uh, the skill set where you go, oh, you know what? I'm going to remember that. That helped this shot. 
and then you, you know you can solve your problems that way which is really ultimately the biggest skill that a good colorist can have is being able to solve problems and quickly and have that experience i i got in so much trouble once i said like being a colorist you know you just have to be a troubleshooter because i come from a it background as well and i just said like you know as a colorist i i approach it as like i look at the shot as a problem what do i need to fix and people got so offended they just they didn't know how to take it what i was trying to say and that's exactly what i meant you know when i said said that because again like when i see how you isolate things and objects and how effortless it is it's kind of insane unless you're a colorist and you can just look at what is happening there it just it never pops out but then to a colorist it pops out so much more so the last shot like where he's looking up at Charlize Theron's character and he's walking away i mean you think that there's a spotlight on him but then i can tell that you're popping him out and then the crowd he's in the crowd but all you see is just him like walking away things like that where it's it's so effortless but it helps the story so much more and i feel like i see that so much in mad max so people can just go how much is done in you know cinematography like or in production than post and i feel like you have you've struck that perfect balance where you've gone like you pushed it and you created such a look yet the story is the you know center of it you know so what is that what is that like i mean when how far is too far and then where do you center yourself to be like okay this is the main focus but then i'm going to build everything around that how do you manage that you know i i i'm still learning that um you know george, george is uh george miller the director is amazing first of all he's a great visionary filmmaker but he also has you know an amazing eye as well and there are times where okay let me rewind there what i really want to say there is that like you know one thing i did learn really really drummed into me working with george is the importance of story and really ultimately that's what we're doing and you know that's what mad max is all about it might be a little bit of a you know crazy look but that's part of it's a crazy film it's it's meant yeah. to suit that story and you know my job is also to help that story literally shot by shot like how do we draw the attention of the audience how do we draw their eye into what's important in that shot or in that moment or whatever it might be and you know sometimes i you know i'll do things and i think oh that's too far right and then george will go no it's not far enough and i'm like really <laughs> that seems ridiculous to me. but then sometimes you'll watch it back and you're like you know what he was right you know and there are times where i'm constantly surprised that i can go further and i can keep pushing you know and so it that's a forever evolving uh, landscape where you're trying to learn that isn't that um, crazy like how your mind just plays tricks like you'll go take a break and you come back and you look at the same shot that you thought something else of and then you look at it again and you're like what the hell was i thinking yes that's a good actually that is a good tip for anyone into color is uh it's not a bad thing to leave the screen for 2 minutes and come back again and you'll see it in a different light. There's another trick that that is really good that I tell people all the time which is a trick that George uses in editing but it's really good for color as well. And if you take your image and you finish grading you think it's where you you think it's working and you're playing across your scene and you think the grade is okay. 
try a version where you flop every shot and, and flip it around the other way. Hmm. So the action, instead of going left to right, is now going right to left. And your brain is forced to look at it completely new because yeah. you can, your brain cannot, if you ever take a picture and you flip it, you go, oh, that looks weird. There's always that moment where it looks weird when you flip it. So if you do that, once you've done a, a scene, you're, you're forced to look at the scene in a completely different way. And then you'll discover things that are drawing your eye that aren't, shouldn't be there or you're looking at things in a different wow. way. So that's a good little tip that sometimes we used. On I'm Mad trying Max. it. This is crazy. <laughs> that's insane. Working on something like Mad Max, where you have so much freedom to, to you know, just kind of let loose and have fun with it. And then going back to the, the commercial side of things where most of the time, like you're sticking with the, with the brand's look and, and you're kind of, I wouldn't go as far as saying restricted, but sort of like make it look natural and poppy, you know, is the comment that goes with it. How do you just go with it? Like with the champion's attitude or is there like a fine line where you will still kind of show them your way? How it is, uh, yeah, it is definitely a uh, case by case scenario. There are some jobs in a commercial that they come in and they're like, all right, well, this is what it is, right? right. <laughs> and there is no point trying to fight it. They just want a clean something or there's something, there is a already prescribed look that we're, we have to adhere to, right? So there's definitely those scenarios, but then there's, you know, a lot of people, especially, uh, you know, the clients that I work with, often they come in with a, a blank slate, like, I don't know, what do you think? And they're like, okay, well, let's try this, right? Inevitably, the other problem working in commercials is you have a lot of people in the room and everybody has their opinion and you start somewhere and it just ends up becoming a little bit mundane by the end. But, uh, but generally, there's a, there's a fair amount of freedom to explore. Okay, so and that's, you know, uh, a little different question than Mad Max, but through this pandemic, like, have you offered remote services before or are you doing it now and how do you think do you think it's going to change anything in the future when it comes to post-production especially color grading you know i wish i knew the answer to that because that would it would make everybody very rich um i think i mean we were definitely doing uh we've been doing remote services we built a system back in 2008 for doing uh remote grading uh and that's been so useful. We've been using it for years to get DPs and directors who are always flying around all over the place. We've been getting them involved in color and, and into the sessions and commercials. Uh, in fact, we used that Studio Link system on Mad Max to um, to link up George and the VFX teams and show work in progress. Because I did a lot of the movie here in Toronto, and then I would fly back to Sydney with George and then come back again, back and forth a lot. So, um, so we've been we've been doing remote sessions for a very long time. The biggest struggle we've always had with it is the human connection is missing a little bit. You know, it's great. You can have a video call and everything, but there, there just isn't as much of that, uh, you know, the instant uh, connection and expression in someone's face. And you can, you know, it's, you can read a room by just turning around and sort of seeing what people are kind of thinking when they're not really paying attention to see how things are going. And when you, you don't have that ability to do it, it, it does become a bit more difficult. The other issue with doing so much remote work is what are people watching it on, which is a big issue. You know, I've got, I've got a nice calibrated monitor here, but what do you have on your laptop or what, you know, I don't know. So that becomes a big issue, but you know, we've been, we've been working through it at the moment and, um, 
you know, partly because we have no choice, but, uh, right. you know, it's working well and we've got solutions and there's definitely ways of getting around it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I think what's going to happen is we will, um, we'll ease out of this. You know, we're not going to, it's not like they're going to open the door and go, okay, everybody just go back to filling a room full of people. And, right, right, <laughs> you know, right. we'll ease into this for a while and, you know, in a, eventually we'll probably end up getting back to the way we were. No, that's, that's a great answer. Um, I, and, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, yesterday I was working on a commercial, did a live session and uh, same thing. Like, I mean, uh, there were two directors. So co-directors, one is saying it's looking too green. Like, you know, the, the, everybody has jaundice, whereas the other director is going, I don't see that. And I'm like, I don't see that. Like, it's looking right. fine to me. And he was like, really? And like, they were, they were even in different places because obviously, you know, everybody's working from home. So, I mean, that is a big thing. Um, and it's difficult. Like, I mean, I've even, you know, come up with a solution where at one job, I actually sent a calibrated monitor to a client and had them just like, hey, watch my stuff on this. But that's not very practical and you can't do it for every client. Um, yeah. Okay. So Mad Max, you know, SDR version, HDR version, black and white. Did you also grade the black and white version mm -hmm. as well? No, I didn't do the black and white. Um, black and white, I'm not actually 100% sure who did it, but I know they just took, they took our master because you couldn't start again on that movie because there was so much work was done. So they right. basically took the master and essentially made it black and white and did a few vignettes and things. So I'm not sure okay. who did it. So when, when grading for SDR and HDR, where are you starting first? Are you starting SDR and then eventually doing the HDR pass or how does it work? uh that is an interesting question like most of the films i've done uh the hdr has always come later um mad max in fact there wasn't hdr didn't exist really it wasn't even a thing until after we had already delivered the movie where on lego it was an it was an after an after thing but we're keeping an eye on it throughout the process I think we will eventually get to the point where HDR should be the, should be the main mastering, yeah. but it's, a, we're in a tricky situation with these kind of, if you're, especially if you're on one of these larger features is, you know, the, the main audience is that, is that cinema experience for the first time. And so they want to make sure that that is premium and that's what the directors are used to. That's what they want to go in and watch. Nobody wants to huddle around the little HDR monitor and, and that becomes, yeah, you know, even though that's where it's going to live its longest right. life. And that's, so I think we, we will see a switch at some point. And I think as right. projectors become more capable of doing, uh, you know, closer to an HDR, I think we'll, we'll probably see, you know, the HDR mastering become a, uh, the first thing you do. I mean, even with TVs, right? Because, Every TV, like I feel like as soon as like your TV kicks into the Dolby Vision or whatever it is when you're watching something on Netflix, sometimes it's too much. Like I just watched Mindhunter season two and it kicked into Dolby Vision and seriously, I had to turn it off. I went back to my Apple TV and turned it off and go, went back to SDR and then when I watched it, everything just looked fine. Everything looked great because with the Dolby Vision, it was just adding so much warmth and green that I'm like, okay, something is not right. And it, I think there's too much at the table right now. Like, are your consumers, what are they watching it on? What's going on? There's so much happening that I feel like, I personally believe that it's still a little bit, you know, ways away, but it definitely will come very soon. Um, I want to get into, let's just jump right into it. So Mad Max, I mean, you know, how's the process, pre-production process? Are you brought on? 
uh, pretty early on because you have worked with George before. So what, what was that like? Uh, yeah, I wasn't brought on super early. Like I knew about it. I knew it was happening. You know, my name was thrown around there for a while. Um, then, uh, I came on sort of, you know, kind of as they're wrapping up, uh, shooting or actually, yeah, sort of mid shooting, wrapping up shooting and started uh, preliminary looks at that point. There wasn't really much I can do during the shoot until everything is done. Uh, there was a good, you know, there was a clear vision about what everybody needed to do and shoot. And, uh, yeah, so I, I sort of came on, you know, it was still about 13 months before we finished the movie. It was a long, it was a long process. Uh, and then, yeah, I started developing looks uh, fairly early while editing is miles away. We're, you know, not even, we didn't have a cut yet, but I'm starting to develop looks on random. That's why I said I had like 15 or 20 random shots that I was working on for a while. Uh, and that's, that was the tricky part because I'm, I'm trying to develop looks, but I don't 100% know how anything's been cut yet. I, am, I haven't seen anything else. So you're just really looking at shots and trying to think about things. The interesting part about Mad Max is that, you know, I, I grew up and I watched all the original movies. I knew them really well. Um, I always thought to myself, oh yeah, this should be, excuse me, this should be like a gritty, you know, you know, desaturating gritty yeah. look or something like that. That's the way yeah. my mind originally went when I saw dailies coming through. I was like, oh, that looks too clean and perfect. I don't, nobody wants that bright, bright. thing. It should be gritty and dark and, you know. Book of that, the life. Uh, and you know, the, there was a stills photographer on set taking stills for press releases and stuff. And he had that same kind of desaturated gritty look and everything. And you, you still see them on the internet today, but it's completely different to where the film ended up. And, and one of the things that happened is, so I, you know, I came up with all these looks and I had a few ideas and some were very saturated, some weren't, some were gritty, some were, they're all over the place. So I had a whole range of styles and I went to Sydney and uh, spent a couple of weeks working with George on developing the looks. And we had, a, by that stage, we had, you know, two or three scenes kind of rough cut so we could mm -hmm. sort of get a sense of the film. And the one thing that he said, which I thought was really interesting, he says, I don't want another desaturated post-apocalyptic movie. That's all everybody that. has done. I yeah, it. It, almost since he did Mad Max 30 right. years ago or more, like every movie that has come out there has been the same look. It's the same wow. desaturated post-apocalyptic look. So his thoughts were we've either got to go like full color or we go black and white. Like there's only two. I don't want to go in the middle anymore. I want it to be yeah. strikingly different. So, and obviously he wasn't able to sell, you know, that movie as a black and white movie. That's not going to work. Um, so we had to go down the full color, uh, pipeline. The hard part when you're developing a look on something like that is you, it's not as simple as just taking a shot and cranking the saturation button, right? No it, yeah. it, it looks like a bad 1980s music video. If you do that, it looks terrible, right? This it's, everything is just red and the sky right. is like purpley blue. It looks awful. So then it was a lot of fine tuning about how do I get a saturated feeling where it's really quite rich in color, but it's not just cranking the saturation knob. Right. 
So, I mean, what is that? I mean, is it, is it, what are you doing? Are you using a lot of, is most of that action happening in primaries wheels or is there another trick? There's, it's a combination. There's probably, I, don't, I can't even remember anymore, but there, I think on every shot, there was like a base correction of five layers to kind of get the overall look from the majority of the movie, right? Just for, and then that's just the base correction. And then we go into layering and whatever else needs to happen. And so by the time you finish a shot, there's often 40 layers or more of stuff right. to, to get the look. But, but yeah, it's a combination of, um, of a little bit of primaries, a little bit of keying, a little bit of uh, filtering, a little, you know, there's a few things going on there and some highlight roll off and black roll off and things and just different, different setups to get that look. Now, I mean, I read so much about Mad Max that I just want to make sure that I still ask those questions for everybody that's watching. So if I read it correctly, it took about, it was like an 18 month process to grade the movie. Is that right? Something like that. It wasn't, and I, I should, I should clarify. It wasn't like I was sitting at the desk for 18 months on set. Right, 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 for sure. There yeah. was an 18 month period from when we started the movie to when we finished the movie. And lucky for us, it was like a, one of those, you know, the stars are aligned kind of moments because it's like, it was such a pleasure to work on this film and to be given so much time was amazing because you wouldn't want to be rushed on a movie like that. And no. So what ended up happening is that they shot, I can't remember exactly what months they shot, but they shot throughout a year. And then they were in the editing process and cutting a long story short, they didn't shoot the bookends of the movie. They didn't shoot the beginning and the end. They, they got very delayed on set and they were running out of time. And the bookends are all set in like the Citadel area, which were all going to be in studios and sets mm -hmm. and things. So they just said, let's get the desert stuff done now while we have the actors and get it through. And they, so they, they shot the bulk of the movie minus the beginning and the end of the movie, basically. Then around Christmas time, I can't remember what year this was, 2012 or 13, one of those years, uh, they went, they got all the actors back together uh, for a few weeks to shoot the bookends of the film. And, and by that stage, they had a rough cut. So they shot a few uh, pickups here and there of like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we got this reaction now that we're cutting together, yeah. right? So they, they did all that. So essentially we're looking around, you know, Christmas kind of time. Then the movie was uh, due to be released in May. And that only gave us like four months to finish the movie, which is incredibly tight considering those bookends all needed tons of visual effects. They needed all this wow. work. And so we, we were, we were going to be, we we're going to have a very compressed schedule. And then something happened. I think Star Wars was due to be around the same time. And this is the year that's the first Star Wars sort of came out and they moved to a Christmas time slot, which meant that the, the, the May time slot was definitely a thing or I can't remember. There's some weird, like, yeah. Yeah, I don't understand how Hollywood right. works and why their studios make certain films at certain times, but that's what they did. Yeah. Uh, so then, uh, but then the world cup soccer was on in May that year and they didn't want to conflict with that. And they didn't want to, there was all these, so they decided wow. to, they decided, you know, in a nutshell, they decided to push the movie one year later. And also we needed more time for post anyway. So suddenly we had an extra 12 months, which is amazing. That is uh, so over the next, you know, over that 18 month period, you know, I would dabble 
and get into the film, you know, a day or two when I can, go back to commercials, go back and do a couple of days, go back to, you know, and sort of on and off over 18 months. So it wasn't like I was sitting on right, my right. for 18 months. That, and that's, it's so great that you have this much time to work on it. Now we did talk about like, you know, you experimenting with different looks, but specifically like, are there any, is there photography or painting or something that you're inspired by that you used as an inspiration or is it all happening in the coloring bay? Like you're just getting inspired as you're doing it. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember anymore. There was definitely certain pieces of stuff that we were inspired by here and there. And uh, there was some great concept art that we looked at that we, we thought was great. But in a nutshell, we're really dealing with what we have and trying to work with the footage and make that as good as we can. Yeah, I can't remember if there was, it's been so long. I can't remember if there was yeah. anything specific. No. But uh, yeah, the majority of it really honestly was like working out how we're going to get this film to look interesting. The big problem with the film, which I, I probably should have talked about earlier, but the, one of the big problems with, with a film like that is that the actors are essentially wearing beige. Their skin tone is beige. The desert is beige. There's not imagine. a lot going on in the movie in terms I of color. Imagine. And the only other color is sky. So everyone looks at Mad Max and they're like, oh, it's the teal orange look. Well, it wasn't really intentionally that. It's just that we only had two colors, essentially. Right. We have a sky and then we have these, these characters in the sand and this grit and this other look. So we used that sky and pushed it quite strong wherever we could to really get some separation because otherwise it's like yeah, the whole film would look beige. And then because the movie is one giant chase scene, how do we make it varied? You know, how do we make it not look exactly the same for right. two hours? We've got to find ways of bringing that up. So that's where we would look into each scene. What if this scene was more of a bleached out white sky and this scene would be a bit of a stormier sky? And this scene, you know, we sort of came up with different ways to approach it based on what was happening in the story to keep it interesting. Now... <laughs> Let, let's deep dive because I have some questions about that too. Like somebody asked, like, how do you separate the skin? And it's the same thing, like what you just said, beige on beige. So how do you then separate it? Like, are we doing, are we pulling keys on pretty much every single shot? Yep. Pulling keys every shot. We're doing a lot of roto, um, especially the night stuff, which I guess we'll talk about in a separate. Uh, yeah. Thing. I would imagine. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of windowing and shapes and stuff. Like every eyeball I hand wrote out in that movie. Oh my God. This is so great to hear that because so many people here are just like, oh, if a grade takes more than eight minutes, then it's not applicable. You can't do that like in real world. Well, this is real world. Like as real as it gets. This is crazy. Yeah. People, people are often afraid to put the work in in color for some reason there is a there's a tendency and i'm i'm guilty of it as well sometimes you know you you get you grade away you get a bit of a look and then you're like that's good i don't know if i want to touch it anymore but why not why not try something else why not push it another why not just constantly looking for a way to improve it in some way and that's what we had to keep doing with mad max is look this for is, look at every shot this is the greatest advice like seriously this this is so simple what you just said but it's so freaking deep because it it just can't be more true. Like so many people, like this is the difference. Like when you watch Mad Max, when you watch John Wake, or when you watch Joker, like 
there's stuff that's happening. Something magical is happening that is universal, that my mom can see it and think that this looks great. My son can see it and he thinks that it's great. And me as a professional can look at it and think that it's great. And it's that little extra mile that you just talked about. It's something that you guys are thinking and going above and beyond that like last step. That, you know, you're there and it looks good and you can print it. But if you just take it a step further, that's that thing. We used to have this saying while we're working on the film, uh, which no offense to anyone that has worked on uh, uh, Transformers, but we used to have this kind of <laughs> saying of like, let's make this not like Transformers. Because I found like that, you know, the Transformers movie, when they got into the action scenes, it was very confusing as to who's who. Like, is that a good guy? It's just metal and stuff flying across the screen. Where yes. one, of the, one of the goals of Mad Max, because it is essentially one giant action film, was to make sure that your eye knew exactly where to go. And whenever, if something happened and someone moved across the screen, when the shot cut, we would make sure that your eye was in exactly the right place on the next shot so you didn't have to scan back over and look for anything. Wow. Like, so there's a lot of what we call eye scan. So every shot, we would make sure that on the cut, you were looking at exactly the right moment so you didn't have to search the frame. So we would do a lot of shaping and moving stuff around. Obviously, a lot in cinematography, they center framed yeah. everything as much as they could. We would, in, in the final uh, color, we would reframe shots so they would line up so that things would be easy to watch. And we would really spend a lot of time drawing your eye to what was important in that shot. What, you know, if, the, if a shot is a guy picks up a pen off the table and that's all it is, I, I don't want to be distracted by anything else. I want to know that I saw yes. a guy pick up a pen, right? And so well, how can I do that in color? What can I do to make sure that that is what I needed to see? That is, again, that is, these, this is just all gold because so many people get lost in the initial look. Like if they create something from lock to something that they get so excited that they were like, okay, done. Like I'm done. But this is that extra step that you're talking about that really like this is where you become a you know colorist like you become an artist like where you're putting focus where it needs to be then like an overall look and it made all the difference because just listening to you and reading about Mad Max and then watching it over and over again I start to pick up on those things that even as a trained eye I didn't when I was watching it because the job was like so well done that I was just focusing on it like on the action and what you said about Transformers I, I personally don't know how much it is colored than cinematography where I don't know why they chose to use like these long shots like or, or these super tight shots of like these two metals fighting with each other because I felt the same thing where I'm just like, wait, why don't you just pull back and give me sort of like, you know, a long shot where I can see what is happening. Like, you know, the, the storm scene when it's brewing like in Mad Max, like you're seeing it from here. You're not in there in like one particular cloud seeing what's happening, you know? So those decisions are so important too. Um, I wanna talk about, now let's just get into the, the day for night. Uh, let's start with how much, like was it pre-planned and how much is, is it done for you in production, like, you know, on set. So when it right. gets to you, it's easy to jump in and create it. Okay. so. The problem with Mad Max is, uh, I should say, I always start off with problem with, there's nothing wrong with the movie. Uh, but one of the issues with Mad Max is that you have people driving through a desert in cars. There is no way you're going to be able to light an entire desert, no. practically. There is just no, there is no light big enough in the world, even if you had those balloon lights and you strung them up, the cars are moving. You cannot light a desert scene at night. 
So they knew going into it that they're going to do a day for night treatment. And George was really inspired by those old uh, uh, Western movies where it had that very day for night blue look. He really loved that as a storytelling kind of device and how it looked like that. We developed so many different night looks on this movie that uh, we had very realistic looking night. We had, you know, very kind of uh, teal looking nights. We had very blue, which is where we ended up going. We had all these different looks, very silvery looks, all kinds of stuff. But uh, essentially, George is like, you know, we've just been watching beige for <laughs> for yeah. uh, an hour. Let's let's go blue then uh, really slam them with the night scenes, right? Which I think is is it was a good decision. So the oh, way they cool. shot the way they shot the day for night is all shot in the middle of the day in full sun or in shade or whatever they were dealing with. There was. Uh, the only thing that they did in production, uh, there's no filters used on camera. There's nothing else. The only thing that they did, which was quite controversial at the time, was they shot two to three stops overexposed, which normally sounds like a big no-no, but they were watching scopes, making sure they never clipped out highlights because they were shooting on the Alexa camera, had a lot of range. Uh, so without clipping the highlights, they would overexpose. And when you overexpose uh, a shot, there is a, there's a, there's a creaminess and a sort of a softness to that image that actually looks like a nighttime shot. So if you were to take your stills photo, take a stills camera out and go out in the middle of the night and do a long exposure and expose up a nighttime shot, it would look very similar to a daytime shot that's been overexposed, that's been brought back down. Hmm. So the other, the other reason for that is when you overexpose the shot, you have a ton of detail and range in the shadows. And wow. one of the things that you want to achieve with the night is the sense that everything is dark, but I can see in the shadows because your eyes would have adjusted and there isn't as much difference between highlights and shadows. And so really what we ended up having to do was take these overexposed frames, grade them down, and then selectively we would go through and roto out what we wanted to see in that frame. And, and we had all that range in there to bring it up. So we could see the face clearly. You could see under a wheel arch or you could see under the, you know, see a tire or whatever you wanted to see in that frame. We had all that range, but it gave you that, there was a sort of also this sort of creaminess to it as well. Um, we spent a lot of time trying to work out how bright to go. You know, we had one version of the film that actually wasn't as blue, it was a little bit more steely. It was quite dark. It was actually quite realistic looking in terms of night, but you couldn't see anything. <laughs> like wow. you're just like looking for the, I can't quite see, it's really dark, right? Mm -hmm. And so we decided that, you know, it's a very, you know, comic book vibe to this whole yeah. film anyway. So we decided at one point is let's open it up and start going brighter. So the film, when we first see night, it's actually quite dark. And over the next five, six shots, we creep it up and we make it brighter and brighter. So you, it's like your eyes adjust to the night and you don't notice anymore. Man, you're a genius. But there were definitely, there were definitely times where a shots would come in and I would be like, really, this is, we're going to do this for like, literally the actor right. squ squinting into the sun, there's a flare in the frame. Oh and I'm my like, God. this looks nothing like night, but you know, we just played the sun as the moon and you you use that as your your method you buy it you buy it like you just feel like if i'm in the desert like in the middle of the night like it's going to be that bright it's going to be like that and you just start buying it and it is unbelievable to how hard it must have been and how fake it is to make it look real and feel real like you're shooting in the day like you said and overexposing it on top of that 
And so many questions were actually about how did he create that creamy like look in the night? And you just answered all of that. Like, I mean, so many people were just intrigued about that. Uh, John Seal, the cinematographer, kept going up to Andrew Jackson, who's a visual effects supervisor, who kept going up to him on set going, are you sure this is right? Like all the way through, because nobody thought this just seemed wrong to overexpose all your footage, but it does, it did work. That's insane. Now, how much help are you getting in terms of rotoing those skies in? Because you, you did mention somewhere I read that you were also doing sky replacement in the night scenes too. Did that happen yes. or no? In yet in some of the night scenes, for sure. Uh, I think in, I don't know, I'd love to, one day I should find the project and count them, but it must have been 600 sky replacements in the movie or something like that. The, I had, we have a great team at Alter Ego, so there's a whole bunch of people at uh, Alter Ego that helped me out with some of the roto. Um, and uh, we had a little team, a little DI team in Sydney that, uh, they were great at like set, they would set everything up, get all the scenes, all the conforms, and all that kind of thing uh, organized for me. And then uh, the one bit I felt really bad about because this movie was also in stereo, it was in 3D as well. And we just graded the 2D first. And when we go to do the stereo, it's a painstaking role. The only real way of doing it at the time was to go through every layer and look at every shape. Okay, left eyeball line up the right oh. eye of the thing and line oh, up every no. every keyframe that I put in and everything. So those poor guys had to go through and fix, you know, fix all the, the you know, we essentially we would grade the left eye and then the right eye would be the other half of the stereo. And then so the right eye would be a ton of work for someone to go and, and wiggle all the shapes around and put them in position. Oh my God. I'm so glad it's not you. Would have taken just... No. Oh, wow. That is insane. And that's such an interesting thing to know. Um, are we going to keep doing 3D, you think? I don't know. Some people love it. George loves it. Uh, I don't know. I've never been a, the biggest fan of 3D. Same. I think if we, can get, if we can get away from the glasses and the ghosting yep. and all those issues, yes. maybe. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. I'm right there with you, which probably will happen. Um, another question that we got is, so the night scenes are unapologetically blue and it's the right kind of blue it's the the terminator 2 blue like it's just like what we used to get yeah. like blue. We, we called it we called it the old-fashioned hollywood spaghetti western blue right that was, oh, it was meant 100%. to feel like one of those old westerns where you you see the cowboy walk out into the day and it's all blue that's the, that was the idea behind it no i absolutely love it but then there's a lantern that keeps its warmth like there's those things so Again, just tons of jiggery-pokery, you're just... Roto, roto, roto. <laughs> roto everyone's oh, faces, add spill. There's, we use a lot of lens flares as well. I'd use uh, OFX plugins and stuff to put flares on headlights, on certain right. things, glow them out, just to kind of give you that illusion. Are you using a Sapphire or something yeah. else? Sapphire. Sapphire is good. I love it. Um, okay, we have seven minutes before we get booted, so I want to get into some questions and... One of the questions is creating a look in Mad Max and how far you want to go with it to, to create some visual interest since it's beige on beige, like you said. Um, what about costumes? Like, do costumes get affected, like the actual hue of the costumes? And is it okay? Like, when do you know yep. that, okay, I got to keep that? Yeah. You, I mean, you look at the overall shot as a, 
as a look. Like, I, like you think of it like a camera filter. Okay, if I put this filter on, of course the costumes are gonna go. If I put a warm filter in, the costumes will go warmer, skin will go warmer, everything goes warmer. That's the filter. So we kind of, the base look is really the filter. Like, this is our look. And then, for sure, there would be times where we would have to go and fix up something in terms of costume, or if it was important to the story, we need to see it. Or if it was, um, you know, there's all kinds of minutia that you go through. The people's skin we have to fix sometimes. There was, uh, I don't know, whatever. Whatever the case may be, right. you definitely get in there. But we weren't too worried about, like, you know, if the overall look twisted the costume a little bit, it, it, we saw it as more like the way the camera was filtered over the whole piece. Right. Okay, that makes sense. And that's that's a good advice for people that are kind of dealing with that or struggle with that. Another thing, another question that I have is like, you know, to a colorist, skin tones, skin tones, skin tones, skin tones. I mean, everybody just sings a song about skin tones. So are there any general or good practices to what a good skin tone is in a specific environment, because that's gonna change, right? We're watching John Wick and they're in the freaking club. The skin tones are not gonna look like yours and mine right now, you know? So is there like a, do you have any tips on that, anything? Well, oh, that's a hard question to answer. I know every scenario is so different, but uh, I'm always just trying to find, you know, a consistency of some sort in the skin tone, some kind of evenness. I mean, if, if the whole thing is blue and the skin is blue and everything, that's fine. That's part of the look, you know, but if you are trying to, uh, I don't the, the big thing I think is the level of exposure on the skin is the big thing. You'd, I generally don't want it to go too bright. Uh, and you want to, otherwise everyone can become quite pasty if you get too bright. So generally it's finding that, that balance of exposure that will often help you more than the color. Like if, if, if someone is, you know, heavily, lit and a little bit overexposed and you're trying to get that you know goldeny kind of skin tone it's going to look bizarre when they're when they're exposed up that high if you just expose it down a little then naturally the skin tone will fall into the right place man there's there's so many there's so many freaking tips here and how you're explaining it it's just like it's just light bulbs on light bulbs so really appreciate it um i want to ask you working on something like mad max you get the dailies you see like where what the movie is gonna be do you know before you jump into it that this is gonna be one of those do you know that it's gonna be one of those iconic movies and especially on the color grading end too like before you even start getting into like grading it i had seen stills before i got in and i knew i'd seen storyboards as well so i knew i knew production wise it's going to be a, a great looking film in terms of that I didn't know, nobody knows. It's all filmmaking is a bit of a gamble. You don't know if it's gonna be a hit or a flop or anything. Right. And I have to admit, when I first saw the very first cut of Mad Max, I actually went home that evening going, <laughs> because oh, it was a, no. it was a very, it was an assembly cut. It wasn't a fine cut. Right, it was right, very right. long. It was just like, oh, I don't know if this is going to be a good film or not. <laughs> you yeah, know, but yeah. but it's such early days. You can't really judge it. It's like you've got to give it time to refine and and get in there. And but I could tell just by looking at the production design, the vehicle design, the costume design. It's like holy moly, this is a good looking yeah. film in that respect, right? And so then there's that that pressure of like I gotta. I've got to make sure I deliver what I need to do to keep it up to that standard. You know, right. because it's a, such a collaboration. Everyone in their departments are doing, they're the best at what they do. So everyone's doing their best they can. And, you know, I can't let the color down. 
that no seriously i mean it's just like the stakes are so high um do you have does eric whip has an eric whip signature look or i mean i know that it changes somewhat like from project to project but do you still have like this sweet spot or this happy spot like place where you go i don't know i don't know the answer that i i find in commercials like every day is a completely different thing i have to move from one thing to another there's definitely things that are you know i like that i find pleasing so i will often find i'll end up in a similar kind of spot you know i, I like color separation i like having you know if if i'm to, if i'm meant to focus on a person i would rather that person uh be on a slightly different shade of color than their skin tone <laughs> i find when it's all just the same it's i it's hard to focus you know just i mean looking at you now your wall is a grayish tone behind you compared to your skin which is in, immediately separating you right uh but if your wall was the same color as your skin it's like you know so color separation is something that you know i i is it's probably one of the first things i look at if i'm looking at a shot like oh, i wonder what i could do with this i'll just look and yeah. say can i improve it in any way by separating and helping if the person is the thing we're meant to look at assuming right. that is you know then i would i would try to make sure that there's a tiny bit of separation in there to help that that's a great tip i want to ask you do you if if another mad max like film comes around will you say yes or no with with knowing oh. like what you have to do oh absolutely 500 you know, sky replacements <laughs> it's it's hard work but it's worth doing so absolutely i do it again man how how i mean does it feel does it feel amazing to know that you not only inspired but just created like created a thing like i mean you know transformers for a minute was a thing but when you think of mad max like you said it's so much more it's not just like the teal and orange or whatever that certain thing like gimmick like when i watch it there's some truth to these colors but then they're so pushed and it's like to know that you created that i mean it's just it's got to be amazing right yeah i mean it was one of the it's a dream job it really was so uh, you know i'm ha- i'm happy with the result uh there's always something i look at in every movie i've ever done and go oh, i wish i had done this and, oh, yeah i can't believe i let that go like that you know oh, there's always something but uh but yeah i'm i'm pretty happy with the result well thank you so much for taking the time to joining us like i know it means the world to everybody here and it wor- means the world to me really appreciate it and your tips were just literally like it's a game changer so really appreciate your time Not a problem. thank you thanks a lot and, cheers and eric before before you go can you please tell people where they can follow you or follow your company yeah uh yeah you can follow me at, at eric whip i think it is I don't even know what my thing is. That Eric group you'll find it if you search it and then at Altrigo Post is our uh is our company. Really appreciate it. Thank you Eric. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much everybody for showing up and this was amazing. The dude is a legend and he's so down to earth. Um Eric once again thank you so much man really really appreciate it and guys like those tips like everything that he said this is going to go on the on IGTV and just make sure to rewatch it because seriously like the things that he's saying so nonchalantly are the difference between you being a successful colorist to just somebody who color corrects like you know small mom and pop like projects here and there so on that note love you all see you next week
And until then, remember, work hard, get obsessed, get possessed. Love you. Guys, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with friends, subscribe to this channel, and I will see you in the next episode.